right, why don't you grab your stuff, make your way back to your seats. All right, we are going to be in Romans uh, chapter 2 this morning. Kids in the room, kids, I need you for a minute. Uh, kids, imagine with me, okay? You're at home. Uh, something happens between you and your siblings. Uh, a fight breaks out. There's yelling, fighting. Something breaks. There are tears. And then your mom or dad walks in the room and says, What happened? Well, in that moment, as your mom and your dad tries to unravel the mystery of what took place, uh, there's a good chance that you or your siblings uh, will try to defend yourselves. Okay? You will defend yourselves. You will come up with a defense. You'll come up maybe with an excuse, with a plea, uh, all the reasons for why what happened happened, and most importantly, why you are right and not wrong. And, uh, you know, your siblings, that's another matter. Now, kids, has that ever happened to you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had that kind of tension build where you try to justify yourself? Now, again, it's called making a plea or giving a defense or coming up with an excuse. Now, kids, fear not. This doesn't just happen with kids. This happens all the time with adults as well. And you can see it on our television shows like Law and Order or Judge Judy uh, or in novels written by John Grisham, you know, full of excuses and pleas and defenses. Uh, and it's also all over the news. So adults, maybe you remember uh, 1995 during the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, Johnny Cochran, one of his defense attorneys, had the really famous line, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. You know, talking about the glove found at the scene of the crime. Uh, but it's not just O.J. There were other famous a lot of famous court cases happened in like the late 70s, early 80s uh, with just wildly creative defenses uh, that, that came out. I don't know if you've heard of the Twinkie defense, uh, but there was a man, uh, 1978, Dan White. He was on trial for shooting Harvey Milk and another politician. And his defense attorneys rolled out what has been called the Twinkie defense, where they said that, no, he can't be, be held accountable because uh, he was undergoing the serious depression, which is... Seen clearly in his massive change of diet, he's been drinking way too many sugary sodas and eating a lot of Twinkies, which is unlike him, and so clearly he's not in the right mind. And Dan White's sentence was, it was reduced. He, it, was, it wasn't the full murder trial. His sentence was reduced, and he got off with the Twinkie defense. But it's not just him. In 1980, there was, in England, a woman named Sandy Craddock who was on trial for attacking a neighbor, and uh, her charges were reduced uh, because her, her defense was that there were monthly hormones that affected her uh, so dramatically that caused her outbreak and, and caused her to attack her neighbor, and, and her sentence also was reduced. Uh, in 1981, there was a man named Steven uh, Steinberg who admitted to committing a pretty heinous crime, uh, but he argued that he did so while sleepwalking. And so his he was found not guilty by means of temporary insanity because he was sleepwalking when he committed this heinous crime. Now, all of these examples point to the fact that we humans will go to great lengths to get ourselves off the hook for our crimes. 
We, we will great lengths to defend ourselves. Now, we are in the book of Romans. We're, we're several weeks in now. We're going to be in chapter, oops, that is the wrong reference. We are Romans chapter 2, right title, wrong reference. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 16 this morning. But last week in that passage, we saw that all humanity is liable to the righteous judgment of God. That all humanity, we all deserve the righteous judgment of God. However, we are masters when it comes to defending ourselves. Masters of our defense when it comes to our own sinfulness and the ways that we justify ourselves to ourselves. And so this week, Paul is going to anticipate and then dismantle all of our attempts to defend ourselves when it comes to the righteous judgment of God. Now the passage opens with the clear statement, you have no excuse. Okay, Paul is just going to lay it on thick for us. But that can be translated, you have no defense. You have no plea. You have no way to justify yourself in God's court of justice. Paul will then go on to outline three reasons. They'll they'll come up on the screen. This is going to be our outline this morning. Three reasons why we have no excuse. He says there will be no escape. There will be no exception, and there will be no doubt. Okay, no escape, no exception, no doubt. It's devastating. Okay, let me read, and then we will uh, dive into it. This is Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 1. I'll be reading to verse 16. But Paul continues his argument, and he writes this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And church, this is the word 
of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's dive into Paul's argument. First off, he says we there is no escape. No escape, verses 1 to 5. Now, last week's passage was a heavy one. If you were here, you know this. Uh, Paul argued that humans have a, a proclivity to turn from God and worship anything else. And when we do, things fall apart. God gives us up to our desires. We dehumanize ourselves, and the resulting chaos is a form of the wrath of God. Now this week, Paul turns from the the, the present wrath of rampant sinfulness to the threat of future wrath on what he calls the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But Paul knew that this letter would be read and that there would be some Some people who heard everything he taught in what we saw last week, and nonetheless, they would think that they were somehow outside of that teaching. He knew that there would be those who would hear that portion of the letter and nod their head and say, yeah, yeah, they deserve that. So Paul turns in chapter 2, verse 1, and says, therefore you have no excuse. You have no defense. You have no plea. That will work. It's, it's startling. You know, it's, it's almost as if Paul steps out of the page and looks directly at us and addresses us and says, you, 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 you. And what's Paul's indictment? What does he say? He says, you may pass judgment on others, but you do the very same things. Now notice, the end of last week's passage, the end of chapter 1, verse 32, we have those who do things that they know to be wrong and approve of others who do them. It's devastating. It says, you do these things, and and you even approve those who do them. And then right off the bat in chapter 2, verse 1, the very next verse, we see those who do what they know to be wrong, but condemn others who do them. So those last week, you know, they may be shameless in their immorality, but at least they're consistent. Whereas those presented this week, well, we see their hypocrisy, or rather our hypocrisy. Because we all do this. We do, every, every one of us. We all think that we somehow don't deserve judgment. While at the very same time, think, well, those other people probably do. They probably do deserve it. I don't, but they certainly do. We all do this. You, you may think, no, that's not me. Yes, yes, it's you too. This tendency, it's, it's something we all share. So researchers at the University of London, they, they did a study and concluded Get this, that a substantial majority of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person. Okay? So so most people think that they're better. They're morally superior to the average person, to everyone else. Most people, they go on, strongly believe that they are just, virtuous, and moral, and yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. So we think that the average person generally is bad and that we are much better. Now, studies have shown... You know, that we believe ourselves to be superior to others in lots of different ways. And so maybe you've heard uh, the study that 93% of us genuinely believe that we're above average drivers. You know, it's just, just very common. There are studies that show we also think we're smarter than the average person. Uh, there are others that, that we think we're friendlier to than the average person. Plus, we're more ambitious than the average person. 
And you might think that with all this amazing news of how wonderful we are, that would give us, you know, an ego problem. But the good news is that studies also show that we rate ourselves as more modest than others. So across the board, we just think that we are just better than everyone else. We all do this. We believe we're better than others. And so it comes as no surprise that some would hear Paul's indictment from last week and somehow think that it doesn't apply to us. That, that because we are morally superior to them, that somehow we might escape. Now, the question is, why do we do this? Why, why do we judge others like this? Why, you know, why does it seem like it's just wired in all of us? Well, it's because human beings are, are caught in this tension. Okay? In our heart of hearts, we long for righteousness and justice. Our hearts cry out for righteousness and justice. And we want to see ourselves as on the side of righteousness and justice. And at the same time, our hearts are bent and sinful, and we relish our sin. We love our sin. And so, so caught in this, this, this two tension, what do we do? What do we do with these two things? With you know this longing for righteousness on the one hand, and then this acknowledgement or, or love for our own sin on the other? Well, what do we do? We judge others think, oh, that's a weird step to take. Well, in doing so, we feel like we can deal with sin vicariously by condemning it in other people without putting it to death in ourselves. See, it gives us the sensation of righteousness without facing the pain of penitence. See, this game, it allows us to both retain and hold on to both our sin and our self-respect but it's counterfeit sanctification. We get the feeling of dealing with sin, of, of, of judging it, of, of addressing it, without actually having to deal with our own sin. See, we think that if we judge others, we can show ourselves as morally superior and maybe even escape God's judgment. But like Dorothy and Toto pulling back the curtain on The Wizard of Oz, Paul pulls back the curtain on this little ruse that we pull on ourselves. So verse 3, he says, do you suppose, do you suppose that, that you who judge those who practice such things yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He says, don't think you're better. No, no, no. There is no escape. And the last line of the paragraph, it's so devastating. While God's kindness to us, it's meant to, to leave room for repentance. Nevertheless, our hard and impenitent hearts are storing up wrath. Yo. Now last week, it was the present wrath of God working its way out in the corruption of the world around us. Here, Paul points to the future day of wrath that's coming. And he says, even if you think you can trick yourself, even if you think you can trick those around you, Make no mistake, there will be no escape. There will be justice in the end. And your hard-hearted, little, hypocritical charade won't save you in the end. And friends, this, this should be sobering for us that we all, every one of us, will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for our deeds. There will be no escape. Well, having unraveled the first part of our defense, Paul moves to the second. He says, not only will there be no escape, uh, there will be no exceptions, verses 6 to 11. 
Now, when I was in college, I, I had a run. It was a really good run. Um, a, the six-month window where I got pulled over 11 times uh, and didn't get a ticket until the very last one. It was, it was devastating. Now, most of the time, it's because I, I lived in this little college town, and the cops were really aggressive and just kind of doing sobriety checks. So they would pull you over for any reason they could come up with. So if you, you know, didn't stop and wait for three seconds at a stop sign, you know, well, you were rolling the stop sign, boop, boop, you know, the lights come on, you get pulled over, and they check to see, oh, have you been drinking? Okay, no. And they let you go. Um, you know, if you, you make a turn, you don't use a blinker, boop, boop, lights come on, they check on you, okay, let you go. If you take a turn a little fast, boop, boop, lights come on. If you appear to be driving, boop, boop, lights come on, and, you know, they just pull you over for anything. But that said, there were a handful of times when I, well, I was speeding, okay? I remember, actually, it was the first time I got pulled over in that little window. Uh, I, I was speeding. I was moving through campus and, and kind of enjoy, it was late at night, enjoying the turns. I was like, oh, yeah, this feels good. And I was taking them a little fast and not paying attention. And just before I get to the highway, you know, the lights go on. I'm like, oh, no, you know, my heart starts racing. And I, I get pulled over. The officer comes to the window and he first notices that I'm, I'm wearing a coat and tie, uh, which at UCSB was strange. Uh, and, and he says, where are you headed? Oh, I'm just heading home. I live off campus. I was coming uh, from my fraternity meeting. It's, it was the Christian fraternity. Have you heard of that one? That's, that's the one that I was at. And he's kind of like, huh? And he looks down and sees on the front seat my giant Bible. And I was like, oh, I, I, I was coming from Bible study. You know, I just like blurted out. I'm like, I can't believe I just said that. And, and he walks back to his car, and I'm sure he was shaking his head at, at me this punk 18-year-old. Um, eventually, he comes back, and, and he says, you know what? Slow down. Drive more safely. Be on your way. And he didn't give me a ticket. And I was like, yeah! You know, drive. I was so pumped and, you know, so excited that I was let off, that he had made an exception. Oh, man, it felt good. Now, Maybe you cheer for me when you hear that, or maybe in your profound sense of justice, you're like, that is wrong. That officer should have given you a ticket. Um, either way, we can all agree that that was a minor offense, right? I would hope that we all would have different opinions when it comes to greater crimes. See, I would hope that, that actually with, with, with greater crimes that we would want impartial justice. No exceptions. Now, in the previous section, Paul asked a rhetorical question. Do you suppose, you know, do you think? But if we're honest, I think we all probably in our heart of hearts would answer his questions affirmatively. We'd say, well, yeah. So he starts off, you know, we know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Yeah, and we're not in our heads. He says, do, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And we think, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I do think that I will escape. Verse 4, you know, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Well, yeah. See, we think that we're awesome. And so, of course, God would make an exception for us. But friends, when it comes to God's judgment, Paul says, no, 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 no. God is impartial. There will be no exceptions. So his second step, the second paragraph, is to show that it all comes down to what you do or do not do. We will all be judged according to our works, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. God is an impartial judge. On the final day, when all is laid bare, God will not play favorites. God will entertain no special interest groups. 
God will be an impartial judge and there will be no exceptions. We'll all be judged according to our works. Now, good Protestant Christians who've been taught the five solas of the Reformation have alarm bells going off. When I say that, because they're thinking, hold on, hold on, I thought salvation was by faith and not works. How can you say we'll be judged according to our works? Well, good Protestant theologian, thank you for asking. We need to understand Paul's statement in the context of the whole argument. See, actually, we all will be judged according to our works, all of us. And salvation is to everyone who believes. Paul said it, chapter 1, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But salvation is only salvation if you need to be saved from something. And Paul is saying that all of our works will be judged. Those who do evil get wrath. Those who do good get glory and honor and peace. But as we're going to see in chapter 3, no one does good. No, not one. Thus, the need for salvation. See, we all deserve judgment. Apart from Christ, we all deserve wrath and fury. God is impartial. There will be no exceptions. And apart from Christ, we cannot presume on his kindness. We cannot expect a a, a back door, a, a way out. Apart from Christ, we have no excuse, no defense, no plea. We're guilty before our impartial judge. So, there's no escape, there's no exception. Lastly, there will be no doubt, no doubt. Verses 12 to 16, Paul further unpacks the the justice or the fairness or the righteousness of God's judgment by saying that in the end, there will be no reasonable doubt. Now, did you know that, that strictly speaking, in our human courts, no one is ever found innocent? That doesn't take place in, in our courts. Court, human courts would never presume to pronounce anyone innocent. You are merely found not guilty. See, in, in, in a court of law, they, they weigh the evidence and figure out, is there enough evidence to prove this person guilty? And if not, then they are declared not guilty. But there's miles of difference between not guilty and innocent. And of course, again, they wouldn't presume to declare someone innocent. In our, again, in our, in our courts, one of the standards for, for having a, a, a guilty verdict is that there cannot be reasonable doubt. That's what got O.J. off, reasonable doubt. Well, on the day of Christ, when God judges, there will be no reasonable doubt. And there will be no unreasonable doubt. And there will be no shred of doubt. Why? Because even the secrets of men will be sorted out. So Paul says. Now he starts this paragraph wrestling with the, the possible objection of, of this self-righteous person. You know, well, what about the person who doesn't have the law? What, what about them? Now before we get to Paul's answer, is not such a familiar objection. You know, his, Paul's dialogue partner presumably has the law and is disobeying it. But to obscure the point and muddy the waters, you know, they shift the focus to someone else. What what about them? It's classic evasion. But Paul won't be derailed. He says the righteous are not those who have the law or hear the law. The righteous are those who do the law. 
And even those who don't have the law prove this point. That's, that's how his argument un- unfolds. He says that when those who don't have the law do something that agrees with the law, that they show that they have a moral compass written on their hearts. But that moral compass, it serves not to help their case, but to prove the overall point. You know, in, in chapter 1, it said that, that we all have, have knowledge of God, his divine nature, the, the fact that he's creator, but we suppress that truth. And so that knowledge, rather than, than serving to help us, it condemns us. And so here, this moral knowledge that we have doesn't serve to help us. It condemns us. Those who don't know God's law, they're not all bad all the time. No, sometimes they honor their parents. Sometimes they recognize the value of human life. Sometimes they're loyal to their spouses. Sometimes they practice honesty and speak the truth and cultivate contentment. And all of those things prove the goodness, well, of the last six of the Ten Commandments. So when they do so, they show they have a conscience and something of a law written on their hearts that agrees with God's law. Paul says in verse 14, it's a fascinating phrase. He says, when they do the law, they are a law to themselves. A law to themselves. They become their own standard. Now, I just marvel at Paul's insight here. Because we all know what it's like to be our own standard. To be a law to ourselves. I mean, we were driving back from the desert from uh, Palm Springs area yesterday. And driving on the freeway, I experienced this. You know, anyone who drives faster than me is a total maniac. And anyone who drives slower, they're an idiot. Get out of the way. You know, come on. But we do this with other stuff too. Anyone who, who eats more than I do, well... They need some self-control. And anyone who eats less than I do, they're a diet freak. You know, what's wrong with them? Anyone who dresses nicer than me, well, they're a total snob. And anyone who dresses, you know, worse than I do, they're a slob. You know, take care of yourself. Anyone who exercises more than me, they probably have strange body image issues. And if they exercise less than I do, they need to care a little bit more, right? I mean, anyone who's, who's more expressive about their feelings, I mean, you know, Hold on a sec. You don't need to be that way. And if they're, they hold back more than I do, well, they're so cold. Why can't they, like, reveal more of themselves? See, whether it be things that are serious, like, you know, politics or cultural sensitivity or theology, or things that are trivial, like how much spice to put in your salsa or your curry, in every case, you know, what's the right amount of anything? What's the perfect level? What is the standard? I am. I am the standard. I am a law to myself. Everyone else, you know, they need to measure themselves against me because I'm the law. But friends, this doesn't even work for us. Francis Schaeffer was a a great thinker, apologist in in the 70s-ish. And he had this this illustration. uh, We can modernize it. He said, everyone... Imagine that they carry around around their neck a tape recorder. Well, we don't have tape recorders anymore. So your iPhone is open and the voice memo is on, or maybe there's like a special app. And imagine as they walk around, every single time you verbalize a judgment against someone else, it gets recorded. So every time you, you say some sort of judgmental comment or you condemn them or you say something, you're holding them to a standard, that gets recorded. That, just that, that verbal recording of your voice judging them. He says, on on the day of Christ, when you stand before God, all he will do is take out that recorder and hit play. And you'll just listen to every judgment that you have made, and you will fall short. 
to fall short of your own standard. We can't even live up to our own standards. Get this, we all violate even the law written on our hearts. We violate our own standards. Paul says that our conscience bears witness against us and in the end will accuse us as the the secret things, the, the hidden things are exposed and judged by Christ. So every judgment we didn't verbalize will also be played and and will be held accountable to it. See, there will be no miscarriage of justice. So much of our human justice system tries to weigh out the evidence of intent, right? So the difference between murder and manslaughter is determined according to the evidence of intent. What did they intend to do? Now, it's possible for human juries to get it wrong because we may not always know the inner workings of the person. We can't always perfectly unravel intent. Was it intended or not? You know, were they sleepwalking or PMSing or did they have too many Twinkies? I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for saying PMS in a sermon. But God will judge perfectly as even our secret thoughts are exposed and will serve to condemn us. Friends, in in the divine court of justice, when I stand before God and I give an account for my deeds, the prosecution coming with the case against me will be me. It will be my words. And there will be no doubt of my guilt. None. And so it is with all of us. Every single one of us. This, this is, it's, it's devastating indictment that Paul is, is taking. He's just hacking down every human attempt to justify ourselves over and over and over again. And if this is like so heavy, you're like, gosh, the second week of this, there's one more week before we get to the good news, so hang in there with us. But Paul says there will be no escape. There will be no exceptions. And there will be no doubt. We have no excuse on our own. We have no defense. We have no plea. Now, I'm just about done. And I, but I'll ask, I asked this last week, I'll ask again, what do we do with a passage like this? How do you take this heavy, heavy dose of the judgment of God and, and apply it in a way that might encourage us? Well, three, three things for us. First, we should rejoice in the perfect justice of our God. You know, our hearts cry out for righteousness and justice. And and a lot of us look at our world and we see injustice. And our hearts long for, for justice. And we worship a God who is impartial and perfect and will execute justice in the end perfectly. See, we don't need to fear somehow getting cheated or or getting a raw deal. That won't happen. God is perfect and perfectly impartial. We can rejoice in that. Second, we should repent. We should repent of our sins. If you are a believer, do not presume, or or that could be translated, despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, sometimes we don't like to look at our own sin because it's painful or it's embarrassing or it's shameful. We try to cover it. We try to hide it. We try to 
you know, obscure the point by judging others. But friends, we should be, as Christians, the most self-aware. Because, because we know the gospel. And because of what Christ has done, we can be set free from needing to play the misdirection game. And so therefore, we should probe the depths of our own sin. To go do that, that dirty, painful work, to grieve it, and then turn from it. You know, we, we need to consider and, and, and soberly consider that day when we'll, we'll stand before God with everything revealed, everything on display, everything we've ever done. That, that should haunt us. It should, that should burden us. It should grieve us. And therefore, we need to repent and turn. Now, if you're here this morning, you're watching online, and you're not yet a believer, friend, beware. Beware a hard and impenitent heart. Maybe in this moment, there's a moment of softening, and just know that God's kindness is for you. His patience is for you, and it's meant for your repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to this God. So we should rejoice in his justice, repent of our sins. And third, we should relish that good news of the gospel for us. This passage is set within a larger argument that will find resolution at the end of chapter 3. But there are hints and arrows even here of where he's headed. So verse 16, he says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says, according to my gospel, he's saying that this judgment, this heavy dose of judgment, is part of a larger story that includes good news for you. Now, like a diamond set on that black velvet in a jeweler's shop, you know, the good news of salvation shines all the brighter when it's seen against the dark background of our sin and divine judgment. But friends, your your salvation, it's not a trick. It's not a sleight of hand. It's not a special exception made just for you. No, 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 no. Your debt was paid. Your offense had to be punished. A death was required. Blood was spilt. And justice had to be done. And if, if you are in Christ, it was done for you. Your debt was paid. Your sin cleansed and covered. Imagine for a minute a man who gets into severe financial ruin because of, of willful mismanagement, fraud, and also incompetence. You know, he's just, just the, the full deck. He's got it all. Now imagine that man in this financial ruin. He has this amazing wealthy aunt who comes in and rescues him out of all of it. She goes through, she brings her team in of accountants, and they go through all of his paperwork. They pay all of his debts at a huge cost to herself. Now, the man in this situation, he's, he's embarrassed, horribly embarrassed, but so grateful to be released from the burden, to be saved. Now, imagine that that man goes into his office one afternoon, and he finds, you know, piles of stuff, boxes of stuff, an old ledger, you know, some, some old paperwork, and he discovers m- more evidence of his impropriety that he didn't even know about. You know, in one pile, he finds records of a a failed business venture, you know, with all of of the debts accrued for the startup. In another pile, he finds letters from a bank threatening foreclosure on a house. In another pile, receipts from, you know, old gambling debts and death threats from a bookie. 
In another file, he finds an embarrassing, you know, photo of himself with a blackmail note. I mean, he didn't even know or remember these things existed, but, but now, you know, he blocked them from his memory. But seeing them now, it all comes flooding back. The weight of it all, he realizes, man, his aunt had to sort through all of this. How embarrassing, how shameful. I mean, the weight of it was enormous, overwhelming. But across all this paperwork, stamped across all of it, big red letters, the word paid. 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 It hurts to look at. But there's that reminder again, paid. Friends, that's us. That's us. In the Christian life, as we, we walk on this road, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal more and more of, of the depths of our sin. And it's painful. And we're, we're embarrassed and we grieve over it, but stamped across it, paid. Jesus' blood for you. Every sin uncovered is a testimony to his grace. As we dig, and with the Spirit's help, we mortify our sinfulness. Oh, there is so much grief but it is such sweet sorrow. Because grief and repentance mean salvation. The debt is paid. You are set free. You have someone who loved you to the end. You have someone that that knew the truth about you and loved you still. And so it's such sweet sorrow because you find in it not just your sin, but your Savior who loved you and gave himself up for you. Relish that good news of the gospel. As the old hymn says, you know, nothing can for sin atone. Not the good that I have done. No, 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 nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. All my righteousness, nothing but the blood. Because apart from him, I have no excuse.